first question is, please give insight into the 144,000 the great mul- and the great multitude are the same. So I'll tell you my thoughts on it. This is a symbolic book. I think there are a variety of ways people interpret this, so I'm not going to uh, give this idea. This is the absolute and only way you can interpret it, but this is what makes sense to me. If you read about the 144,000, there's 12,000 from each of the tribes, and these tribes are symbolic representations of the tribes of Israel who symbolically represented the saved people from the various parts of the earth, or the priesthood of believers, if you will, from the various parts of the earth. So, and, and the gates of the New Jerusalem have their name on them, um, east west, north, and south, three, three gates, three names. So it's symbolically saying God will have his spokespersons, which remember Israel was supposed to be his representatives and priests to go out and, and witness to the world uh, on all corners of the earth. Okay, And that's why 12,000 from each of the tribes. I don't think it's a literal number. I think it's a symbolic number. And these are described in Revelation 7 um, as his prophets until my prophets are sealed on their forehead. And if you look up the prophet in Scripture over and over again, the prophet is God's spokesperson. The prophet is not primarily a prognosticator like Daniel and Revelation giving future prophecies. Almost all the Bible prophets were simply people who had for the, for the people of that day a message from God repent. Uh, when Jonah went in, he had a message for them to act on today. Spokespersons for God had that, that gift. So I would call them, these are the spokespersons for God who are settled or sealed. And what's the sealing? Being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, cannot be moved. Uh, from all over the world, and as this group settles and seals, then the four winds loosen. I don't think fully loosen, but, but you know, little, little pinky fingers loosen, and, and some things start to happen around the world that wake the great multitude out of their complacency. It's like the, the, the virgins are sleeping, and they wake up, and what's happening? And this first group of his witnesses, his spokespersons, are from all walks of life, and every corner of the earth, they're, they're there to give the end time three angels message to explain what's happening, and from their witness, a great multitude from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people are saved. That's my understanding of the two groups. And God is actually holding the four winds. Hold, hold, hold until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And he's holding back the four winds until, the, my view, the witnesses, the prophets, the spokespersons are settled that they cannot be shaken and are on the scene ready to give the witness. And then he loosens and the troubles begin and the witness is given and a great multitude is saved. That's my interpretation of that. But I won't argue if somebody sees it differently. In a Bible study class, we were discussing how God made Adam and Eve clothes. We, also, we, we know it was made from animal skin, and God could just speak it into existence. A pastor in the group, she stated it was just her opinion, not from Scripture, that she thought God killed a lamb to make the clothes, and in his love taught them how to do sacrifices. This didn't ring true to a couple of us. We can't picture God killing. Your thoughts? Okay? Pardon? So I happen to... I, I, I happen to agree with your interpretation that God did not kill, the, and I have reasons for it, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't used power to end this temporary, transient human, human and or animal lives. Look at the flood. A lot of animals are put, and a lot of humans are put to the first death experience in the flood, or Sodom and Gomorrah, the firstborn of Egypt, or Korah, Dathan, and Byram. God used power many times to put people in the sleep death, but the sleep death, first death, is not the wages of sin death, and people that, that look at those evidences will always conflate, that hold the imposed law, conflate the two and say, therefore, he does the end. It's different. The first death experiences that God has used throughout history are all Always therapeutic experiences because the whole Old Testament narrative is the 
plan of salvation, God promised in Genesis 3 that a seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. Messiah is coming, and without Messiah, all humans are lost. And so the whole Testament narrative is the battle between God fulfilling his promise to bring Messiah and Satan trying to block the avenue through whom Messiah is going to come. This is where the Bible focuses in on where it focuses. It's constantly narrowing down the focus on the branch of the human family through which Messiah comes. That's the whole focus. That's why we don't have anything about China in the Bible. It's not that God doesn't love China or Chinese people. It's because the Messiah wasn't coming through them. Okay? And so so I, I wouldn't say that God... Uh, doesn't ever put people to sleep or even uh, uh, animals in in whatever death animals die. Uh, That's not the issue. The issue for me is the object lesson that it would teach here. If we say that God actually uh, killed the lamb, the lamb is symbolic of Christ. And if we say God did that, then the object lesson would be, and therefore God killed Jesus on the cross. And it leads to a false teaching. And it wasn't God killing Jesus on the cross. We just went through that whole thing. It was, if you want to say it this way, our sin that separated him when he voluntarily took our place and died as our savior. But it wasn't God acting to use power to kill him. And so there's one um, passage, if I can find it for you, I think I queued it up here, if I can find it, that, uh, that Ellen White wrote that gives some insight into this, and maybe it's read in too much, but it's out of Prof- Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. But I think it, it, it's sufficient for me to, to feel confident in my conclusion. It says, To Adam, the offering of the first sacrifice was a most painful ceremony. This is page 68 of Patriarchs and Prophets. His, his hand must be raised to take life, which only God could give. It was the first time he had ever witnessed death. And he knew that he had, had he been obedient, there would have been no death of man or beast. As he slew the innocent victim, he trembled at the thought that his sin might shed the blood of God. So for me, if this was the first death that his hand slew, that he saw, then God didn't kill the animal to make the sins. God probably just spoke skins into existence for them. And if God can speak living beings into existence, he can speak skins into existence. So that's how I read that. Are the mark of the beast and the sealing of God's people concepts only reserved and applicable to the last days, or have they been experienced to somewhat lesser degrees throughout history, for instance, during the Dark Ages? I've always viewed that there, throughout history, have been three groups of people. There have been those who are sealed of God, so subtle to the truth, intellectually and spiritually, they cannot be moved. Job would be a perfect example of that. He went through a terrible trial and tribulation, and though he had questions, he could not be shaken out of his loyalty to God. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, Stephen, and many others throughout history were sealed and settled, and nothing could shake them from their loyalty. And then there have always been a few who were so hardened against God, no amount of truth and revelation would win them to loyalty. Pharaoh would be an example. His heart hardened, and nothing would, would uh, win him to God. And then there is, uh, through history, a group of people, a big group in the middle, who haven't either been sealed to God or hardened against him who are open to be one in either direction. Before Christ comes, the middle group evaporates. Things become more and more polarized on planet Earth. Are you seeing things becoming more polarized on planet Earth? And people are choosing the sides they're going to settle into in their identity, in their character, in the methods, in the principles that they practice. They practice truth, love, and freedom such that these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death, Revelation twelve eleven. They are other-centered and self-sacrificial. Or they love themselves so much that they will use the power of the state to force people to take certain medicines they don't want to take in order to make themselves feel safe because we have to save lives after all. We'll coerce and force. See? So we'll have to settle into one of two camps, and I think people are deciding right now. 
I asked a question a week or so ago about the fairness, and you're going to have to help me understand this. I just screened this just a minute ago. It just came in. I'm not sure I can understand this question. I, understand, I asked a question a week or so ago about the fairness of those being created after the second coming, never rejecting God, while those created in the past, including Lucifer, did have the ability to reject God, and as a result, being lost for eternity. I still wonder about the fairness issue. Had they been created after the second coming, it appears that they would not reject God. Uh, were they just created too soon? Uh, I guess the way I'm reading this is there's an assumption that I don't find any evidence for that God is going to create new life after the second coming. That, uh, if you have an inspired source that says God will create new living intelligent beings after the second coming, I would like to see that source. I've never read that. Has anybody read that source anywhere? I, I don't have that source, but i can I reframe the question? If God creates an additional world after... But see, you said if, yeah. and that's an assumption, yeah, yeah. okay? But if he creates a world... But that's an assumption. There's no evidence. My... No, I agree that. But the question then becomes, would those people be able to make a choice for to sin or not? Correct. I understand that. Yeah. I, this, so, but, but this whole question is based on assumption that I think is false. Yeah. I, don't, I have no inspired evidence that God creates new intelligent life after the second coming. Um, if, if it happens, we can answer the question then, but this is speculative. This is completely, so... We just don't know. Well, there's no evidence. So if you have an inspired reference that suggests that happens, then, then I'll answer this question. But until then, this creates a doubt and an uncertainty in God's fairness based on hypotheticals, not based on objective truth. And if the objective truth is because that wouldn't be fair, he never creates any new life, then, then your entire concerns evaporate. What is the other-centered living actually going to look like in heaven when everyone is healthy and no one is in need? For instance, our children used to joke when trying to understand this, and they would stand at the door and keep saying to each other, you first, no, you first, no, you first. (laughs) Yeah, I think it has to do with the motivation of the heart, that everybody's for everyone else. Everyone is for the best interest of everyone else. My view of, of the new heaven and earth is not that it is a place free of mistakes. Amen. If you take up a music lesson of an instrument you've never played before in heaven, you will learn it, I think, much more efficiently and proficiently, but you still may hit some wrong notes as you're, hit, as you're learning it. If you take up and decide to spend some time with Albert Einstein and try to learn theoretical physics... <laughs> There may be some math equations that you get wrong as you're learning that. It, we, the fun of learning. That's right. This is part of the joy of epiphanies and learning, struggling with problems, because we are not infinite God. We will not be infinite God. We have faculties that are so much more efficient that we will learn so much more quickly, and we will be able to... Uh, uh, but, but the idea, there won't be mistakes in heaven, I think, that's, I think that's not true. I think there'll be mistakes, but there will no be, there'll be no evil. There'll be no selfishness. There'll be no exploitation. There'll be innocent desire. We'll be thankfulness when, when somebody points out the mistake on the board. Rather than humiliation and anger that you got it wrong and you're being embarrassed, there will be rejoicing. Oh, that's exciting. Thank you for showing me that. Okay? Um, so um, I, think, I think it'll be a place where everybody loves everybody and gets along well. How do we know if we have forgiven someone? If someone still irritates us, mostly because they wronged us and never made it right and are a little unpleasant anyway, <laughs> does that mean we haven't forgiven them if their company bothers us? I would encourage you to get my book, Could It Be This Simple? It's free. 
You can, you can actually uh, download the, the PDF or the audio on our, on our um, member site. If you have a U.S. address, we'll mail you one. But uh, you can go to my, one of my lectures on, online, and, and uh, there's a seven myths of forgiveness. This has got a little bit of a myth in here. One of the, little bit of the, myths, one of the myths that keep people from forgiving is, if I forgive them, I have to trust them. Another one is, if I forgive them, I have to forget. These are both myths. No, this is not true. If I forgive them, I have to be around them? If I forgive them, I have to be around them. No. Not true. true. (laughs) Forgiveness is about removing from your heart all the negative animosity, hatred, anger, bitterness, resentment that sin. Sin is insidious. As sin infects the heart, it it, it plants a seed, a seed of hurt, of anger, of resentment, of wanting to retaliate. And, And if you don't remove it from your heart then it will grow and you will become like the person who wronged you. And thus, when Jesus forgave those that put him on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He demonstrated that he is not going to become bitter, anger, resentful. He forgave them. Did, did they now become his trustworthy friends? No. Were they for him or still against him? There was no reconciliation there. Okay? And so he forgave them, but he certainly was not trusting of them. They, they did not deserve it. They remained untrustworthy. When it comes to the fact of, of um, irritates us, there are things that are objectively irritating. Somebody steps on your foot and you get irritated because they won't get off. That doesn't mean you hate. It's irritating to have someone step on your foot over and over again, isn't it? Yes, you had a, you had a comment. Yeah, I was just wondering, when God forgives us, does he want to be around us again? And is that a type of, of our forgiving other man? Does God want to be around us before he forgives us? Yes. 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 Absolutely. So your question, when God forgives us, does he want to be around us, implies that somehow forgiveness is connected to his desire to want to be around us. I'm going to suggest because he wants to be around us, therefore he forgives us. And when we receive his forgiveness, it says in, in, in Hebrews uh, 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And therefore, because he sees we're sick, and because he wants to heal us, and because he wants to be around us, he forgives us, and those of us who respond to that then repent. And when we repent, we experience a change of heart. And when forgiveness has happened on the side of the one offended, and repentance, which is a genuine change of heart, we're not the same people anymore, happens uh, on the side of the, the sinner, that means we become trustworthy, then reconciliation can happen. But without the both things happening in the equation, he can still want to be around us, like Jesus forgiving those on the cross. He was doing it because he loved them too. But they won't be around. The Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're killing me. They're actually cutting themselves off from the only source of life. But you understand my question. Like, is it a type of our forgiveness? Uh, in the same way, un- upon reality. We should have a desire for that reconciliation, for that healing and relationship, but we have to recognize that our forgiveness and our goodwill towards another person in no way makes that other person trustworthy. Exactly. Right. And unless they become trustworthy, we are foolish to open ourselves up to be abused and exploited by them. Uh, for a variety of reasons. One, it will, the more we get abused or hurt by other people, it diminishes our effectiveness to carry out God's Good, good purposes for us, whether it's physical injury or emotional injury, we are diminished at that moment in doing God's will. That's one reason. The other reason, though, if we openly, knowingly put ourselves in position to allow somebody to continually steal from us or exploit us in some way, we're adding to their guilt level. We're, we're colluding with their searing of their own conscience, hardening their heart. By removing ourselves from the equation, they may not repent, but they also don't pile up further um, sin in their own character. 
So it's an act of love on both parts to do that in a gracious way. Does that make sense? Yeah. And if we follow the injunction of the Apostle Paul to heap coals of fire on their head by acts of kindness, in a normal relationship, normal people, often that does result in reconciliation. That's right. That's right. But not, reta- not for an eye for an eye. Healthy. Right? Yeah. But to do good. Yeah. Healthy, not normal. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I'll go for yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> is conception based on God's design, or do you think it is more of a God's timing because people... Some couples try and try, and it takes them months to conceive. And other couples can try once and get pregnant. So do you think it's according to how healthy you are or something God guides? So in Scripture, no, there's Scripture evidence to answer this question. Since Adam's fall, all types of physiological defects have entered the human body. Who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? This is a physical problem he was born with. Neither. This was permitted that God's glory may be manifest, and God healed him. And so, as we've talked about before, Scripture records seven miracle births. One virgin birth, which was Jesus, but seven non-virgin miracle births. And you're familiar with those. Rachel, Rebecca, uh, Samuel, Samuel's mother, Hannah, um, Samson's mother, um, many more. Now, John the Baptist, okay? All of these individual women, and we know, for instance, Sarah. Sarah. This was Sarah's infertility problem because Abraham had kids with other women. So Abraham didn't have a problem. But Sarah was infertile. And so all these women had fertility problems. Remember Samuel's mother, Hannah, prayed, prayed because she couldn't. And, and Rachel prayed and prayed. Okay? And what God did here, God healed a physical malady like he healed the blindness. And now he restored her normal fertility abilities. And then she got pregnant in the normal way. All other humans get pregnant in relation with her husband. And so that's what I think happening here. So I don't think that it is an act of God to cause a pregnancy with the exception of Jesus. The Holy Spirit came on Mary and caused a pregnancy. The rest, he will improve physiology uh, in many circumstances when he believes it's right to do so. Does every blind person that prays to God have their vision restored? And not every person with a fertility problem will have their fertility improved either. That is, does not mean that God doesn't love or doesn't care. And I encourage you to read my chapter and my think it's the book God-shaped heart about miracles. Um, my view on miracles is that the common view in, in the Christian landscape is if you have faith, you'll get a miracle. In reality, in Scripture, most of the time, the miracles are for the weak in faith, not the strong in faith. They are often carried out through the strong in faith, but they're for the benefit of the weak in faith. And you look at the long list of miracles in Scripture, they were for people who had doubts. Gideon needed a miracle with the fleece because his faith was so confident he was ready to head out or he needed reassurance. Reassurance. And if you look at the miracles over and over, the, the fire at Mount Carmel, was that fire for Elijah's faith? Or for the faith of all the confused people? And on and on. You know, the apostles' faith. Were the miracles that the apostles worked through the apostles, was it for the benefit of the, the apostles or for the benefit of the people who were lacking in faith? Same with Jesus' miracles. And on and on it goes. So often miracles can be worked through the strong in faith. Even Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, who personally did benefit from the miracles, they actually weren't done for them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, it's recorded in Scripture, we know that our God can deliver us from the first, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. 
They didn't need that miracle to stay faithful. Nebuchadnezzar needed the miracle. It was for Neb and for other people through history. And so that's how I view miracles. And Jesus said, blessed are they that have not seen. That's right. That's right. Well said. Would you expand upon sanctuary cleansing with respect to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, entire spirit, soul, and body? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your entire spirit, soul, body be kept blameless to the day of the Lord. Um, yeah, I think this is a great insight, something I've actually been working on in my own private devotions the last couple of months. Um, the, the ultimate body cleansing, the ultimate, is, of course, is when this mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on corruption. But while we're here on this earth, the principles of Christian living keep our spirit temples uh, at the highest proficiency and uh, healthiest um, functioning, which gives us the best abilities cognitively, emotionally, and so forth. Then when we damage our physical bodies, uh, it leads to more psychological and emotional problems uh, we're less, we have less energy. We fatigue more easily. We can get irritated more easily. We focus less well. We might make snap decisions. Uh, lots of things can, can go wrong in our functioning when our body. So we want a, the healthiest body, so we live a, a, a principle-based living on the laws of health, and we do that. So that's cleansing our bodies, but the ultimate, of course, is glorification. Our minds is, is or what we talk about a lot in here, truth. Bringing truth to bear, to eliminate the lies, to restore trust, to, uh, to have us worship uh, God as he has revealed himself in Christ to be. The law of worship, by beholding, we become changed. But this then ultimately leads to a change in the, in the spirit. And what is the spirit? It's not an ethereal vapor that floats around. It is the, if you want to say it this way, it is the, the life energy um, that, uh, that drives us um, and, and you can pick this up sometimes when, when people say, with, say, say, you know what, um, on next, next week when you're in Europe, I'll be with you in spirit. Now, are they saying I'm going to be with you in body? No. Are they saying I'm going to be with you in my cognitive belief systems, I'm going to believe things good about you when they say that? No. They're saying in heart, attitude, my love and affection are going to be oriented to your welfare and to bless you. And so we can believe things uh, that are true, but have an orientation of our heart attitude that could be negative or hostile. And the, and the cleansing of our spirit is to remove the resentments, the bitternesses, the hostilities, the, the antagonism, the hatreds, and, and put in the fruits of the spirit. And the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And these fruits are attitudes of the heart that drive our actions. And this is a cleansing that comes from having an experiential knowledge. If you read my blog, did anybody read my blog this week? Yes. Yeah, this is, this is part of the spirit cleansing I've been working on. And so I think it's a great question. Thanks for asking. And, I'm, and I've got more work to do. That's not a full answer. Please clarify uh, our substance in the view. Please clarify our substance in the new earth world. Example, I think I heard you say that the river in heaven was just language used for thirsty people in a desert, that God was fire and we would be with him in the non-consuming fire. I am lost in my understanding of these things. I, we always were programmed to see the new earth very similar to the earth, only much better. Do we have bodies or are we just one with God? No, we're gonna, my view is we have, phys, Adam and Eve have physical bodies. We're going to have physical bodies. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be an upgrade. <laughs> 
a substantial upgrade from what we have now. Substantial. And if, you, if you're not there yet to appreciate that, just give it a few years. <laughs> the more I look in the mirror, the more I know this is not as good as God can do. Okay? He can do better. Okay? This, 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 and Paul talks about all nature groans under the weight of sin. We are decaying. We are, we are, Ellen White talks about how we're dwarfs. You know, Adam is, what, 15 feet tall, and Eve is like 12 or 13 feet tall, is what she describes in Eden. And so we've shrunk from decay over the years, and we're going to, so we're going to have real physical bodies. The, the, the structure of the planet Earth, you can, I'd encourage you, if you value it, read, that, read how uh, the Earth was described in Patriarchs and Prophets before the flood. Trees more than twice as tall as anything on Earth now. They're, they were, the, 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 the material of the tree as hard as what, what much of stone is today, as dense and as hard as stone. Uh, so one possibility is petrified wood is actually wood from trees that existed before the flood. Wow. That's one possibility, as this description. Uh, the, if you look at the earth, the uh, mountains that we see, that, uh, that author says, correspond to bones of the body. They gave, they gave the deep foundational structure, but at the flood, the earth was broken up and they pierced through. So imagine if you see a body with a broken femur sticking out. Do you go, beautiful, beautiful, so beautiful. No, you go, oh, that's a, oh, we look at those, the Rockies and the Himalayas and we go, beautiful, beautiful. It's not how the earth was. It's not how the earth was. I don't think we can fully appreciate how the earth was. We talk about the river of life, though. The river of life, it says it th- flows from the throne of God. And Daniel 7 says the ancient of days took his throne and rivers of fire came out from before him and thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And this is the river that is the life-giving glory of God that is not combustion, that does not consume, that the, that the new Jerusalem will not need a sun to light it because God's presence will be its light, that gives radiance, that will be the, the source of the energy that will clothe us and we will have a, a, a clothing of light. It comes from that union of God in some way that we can't fully appreciate now. So, but I think, I think uh, use your spect- uh, sanctified imagination. I have all kinds of things that I, I imagine uh, in the earth renewed, and we can talk about that sometime, but that's, that's great. And one last question. Why was marriage within family valid at the time of Abraham, but now looked down upon and even dangerous due to all the genetic abnormalities that can occur? How does design law play in? It, exactly what you said. Close to the time of, the, uh, of creation, they didn't have significant genetic mutation. And they lived, two, two elements, one, just not, so when you, when you had brother and sister marrying, number one, you didn't have inbred genetic disorders being passed down because they just didn't exist yet. Two, part of the dynamics of, of siblings and, and close relatives uh, marrying and getting in is the psychological elements of being raised in the same home. But when you live 900 years and you're an adult at age 25 and you go off to explore the earth and you come back when you're 65 and you meet a 25-year-old that you hadn't known before, then you can marry that 25-year-old and there isn't some of that sibling element there because you weren't actually raised together even though you're from the same parents. So both of those elements allow for that prior to the flood. Now there's all types of problems, genetic and psychodynamic, 
that interfere and cause harm when families intermix this way. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the love that you've provided for us, the truths you revealed in your word. We ask that you will uh, bring home to our hearts um, the final message and the truth about your character and methods that we can be your lights at this time in history and, and see you coming soon. We see so much that's happened in this world that is confusing minds. And your, your word, your message is desperately needed. So make us effective as your agents. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.